All right, y'all, pull out your swords, take out your Bibles. Joshua chapter 6, verse 16, verses tonight. Joshua 6, verses 1 through 16. Now we've come to the, the passage that you all know. You sang about in Sunday school, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. And the walls came tumbling down. Amen? Now we get to that passage, and and though we very often look at this passage almost symbolically, I want to remind you that this is a real story, real people, real event. It actually happened, and there is an archaeological site that you can go visit today and go see where it happened. You have to go into the Palestinian territories. You're going to be in Arab-occupied land in Palestine uh, which ought to be Israel, as far as I'm concerned. That's what God said. Um, but it is a real place. It was a real fortified city. And so before the battles, we saw last time they're being prepared for that victory. They needed to get right with the Lord in order to partake of this wonderful victory that's about to occur. But there's something that we all need to no, not just in our hearts and in our minds, but in our hearts and our heart of hearts very deeply that we as Christians, God's people in all times, including the Jewish people at this time, fight from victory, not for victory. We fight from victory and not for victory. The battle's already been won. God's already taken care of that. For us, he's taking care of it in Jesus Christ. But we, as we wage war in this world, as we go through the things that we go through, you know, I've shared with you frequently and often, it just seems like the enemy is on a terror right now, attempting to destroy, to kill, to maim. Uh, It seems like I spend a vast majority of my time talking to people who are hurt and broken dismayed, distraught. They are wandering uh, aimlessly at times in this world thinking that the enemy has won. The enemy has not won. God has won. The battle is His. It's always belonged to Him. He's always been sufficient for it. And Joshua was about to find out that there was nothing for them to do. And when we say that, that doesn't mean that we on this earth don't go through our struggles and our trials and that we don't have to fight the good fight. We have to do that. Amen? You you need to do your part. I need to do my part. But your part and my part is not God's part. And your part and my part will not secure the victory. God has secured the victory. We are possessors of that victory in Him. And so tonight we see that before us very, very clearly. Uh, we, we stand in, in that guaranteed position, if you will. And, and the reason I say that is so very often, if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, the Lord is in this long discourse in the 12th chapter. Now we're about to go into the 13th, but the 12th chapter specifically where the Lord is speaking to his disciples. And he's reminding them, look, this is going to be a fight. It's going to be a battle. It's going to be a war. Uh, but that that we fight and that that we war at, the, the Lord is sufficient for those things. And so when we get overwhelmed, when we feel like, you know, how can it get any worse? Uh, how, can, how can this possibly ever work out for my good? You know, we start to doubt that promise there in, in Romans uh, 8. 28, we, we begin to wonder if all things indeed do work together for the good for those who love God and are the called according to his purposes. We sometimes wonder those things. I know I have. Uh, even pastors go through those days and times when you're like, Lord, are you out there? In this case, we have one of those wonderful passages of Scripture that we can cling to. Uh, we have already garnered the victory, if you will. And we need to simply go take the ground that God's promised. We take that by faith. And so that defeated foe lies before each of us. And I pray tonight that 
God will speak to us in a mighty and a powerful way. Would you join me and let's pray. Father, thanks for this time tonight. and Lord, I pray that you would just take our cares and concerns, the thoughts of our mind, the things that uh, perhaps we brought with us tonight. Lord, we went to work, we were at home today, and perhaps something has, has filled our hearts and minds and given us cause to tremble and, and to, to doubt. And, and Lord, we, we just pray that you would silence the lies of the enemy. And we pray that your truth would be made known to your people. God, that we'd be encouraged and strengthened tonight. pray that you'd bless us as we study your word. How we pray that you yourself would instruct each of us in how we ought to live our lives. Godly in Christ Jesus. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. You know, when you look back on the life of the Lord, and again, I think it's important for us to put these things into perspective. Jesus didn't just defeat the enemy, you know, in the wilderness. He did that with with Satan himself. Amen. When Jesus was taken out into the wilderness, he was tested for 40 days. Satan himself was defeated. So we know we can do that. But he also, during his earthly ministry, defeated him at every turn. You, you remember as we've studied in Luke's Gospel, we've seen demoniacs healed and people with all kinds of disease and people fed. The Lord is up to the task. Amen? A hundred percent of the time the Lord is up to the task. But that does not mean that we aren't going to go through difficult times. It doesn't mean that we aren't going to be stretched and tested. Doesn't mean that our faith isn't at times going to get near the breaking point. You know, we've all, I think, if you walk with the Lord for any length of period of time, you've been brought back to that place to where you're like, man, I don't know if I have enough faith to get through this thing and fill in your own blank. That issue that's in your life that just looms huge, it's large. When you look across the horizon of your life, across the planes that are the normal day-to-day mundane things, there is your Jericho rising up out of the plains. A fortified place that the enemy has just moved in and set up ground, and it looks like there is no way on this earth you can take that ground because it just looks like it's way too overpowering. I think we all will go through those things in our lives. I have yet to meet a Christian that hasn't come across something that was their Jericho. A place in their life that he just go, man, I, you want me to do what, Lord? You, you, I, I'm not so sure. That was the Jewish people as they looked at Jericho. The Lord is busy right now interceding for you, interceding for me, and we need to remember that. You know, the Lord isn't just kind of passively hands-off letting things go however they may in this world. Sometimes we're tempted to think that, aren't we? I think if we're honest, we all have those days and we think, man, I wonder if the Lord's, did he take a vacation or was there, you know, is there something going on in heaven to where he doesn't quite get it today? I think we've all had times in our lives where we wonder if the Lord still got us in view, still got us in His hand. And I'm pretty sure as they looked at Jericho, they were wondering, Really? You want us to go take that? That fortified city? And so the first thing that we see was that the Lord had already promised. You remember uh, back in chapter 2, He actually said it, but the Lord had promised that that his fear would go out through the land, and that was exactly the case. So verse 1, it says here in Joshua 6, And now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, and none came in. So as the Canaanites that inhabited the city of Jericho looked out at the Jewish people, and I would remind you, they came from the wilderness. They were probably somewhat emaciated. They, they had not lived on the fat of the land. They'd been living off of manna for 40 years. Bread and water basically was their diet for those 40 years in the wilderness. Had an occasional quail chucked in there every once in a while. But largely it was a bread and water diet. And so they didn't come, you know, they had not been on a Bowflex. 
They had not gone down to the local vitamin shop and gotten plenty of nutrient supplements and supplemented their diet. They hadn't been training in some camp to where they got three squares a day, and they were in this, you know, absolutely buff military fighting force. They were a bunch of skinny, ragtag, poorly dressed, poorly armed, uh, looked like a bunch of ragamuffins out uh, amongst the fields just across two miles away on the now the western side of the Jordan River. And so as you think of that, it's pretty awesome to realize that God had already instilled the fear of the Lord in the people of Jericho. That's why they shut up the city. That's why nobody went in. That's why nobody went out. God had already worked in a marvelous way on their behalf, and the proof of it was there was fear in the fortified city of Jericho of a bunch of bums. A bunch of people with very, very little capacity to take a fortified city. And as you look at that city, we're going to find out as we as we move on to chapter 8 specifically, but chapter 7 as well, that after this battle at Jericho, they're going to go on to a much smaller city whom we know, because Scripture says so, had 12,000 people in it. Jericho was a larger city. Uh, estimates range from the insane maybe 1,500 or so all the way up to maybe perhaps 50,000. Likewise, somewhere in between, I think, probably lies the truth. But there were likely ten to 15,000 people in this city. It was a small space, and I'm going to show you that space in a moment. It wasn't a huge city. It was probably about the size of an average football stadium, uh, about nine acres or so. But it was nine acres of double walls and nine acres of fortification and nine acres that had its own spring and nine acres that contained enough feed inside of it to take care of the people for perhaps as much as a year. And the archaeologists of our day have uncovered those those troves of stored goods and we can now look at them in multiple museums around the world. And so as we look at the City of Palms, that's the name that Jericho actually is, when you look at it, it was actually a double-walled city um, that's been well excavated. It had an inner wall and an outer wall. There was a city in between the two walls. Part of the city existed there. And then in the middle of it was the main city. And when we say city, you and I think of skyrise, skyscrapers. We, th- we think of large buildings. We think of things that can hold thousands upon thousands of people inside of one building. That was not the case then. What was the case then, as I showed you in Capernaum, if you saw those slides that I showed when we began our journey in Luke, uh, the houses basically took advantage one of another, and normally a wall of one guy's house would be the back wall of another guy's house and the side wall of another house. They were literally house to house to house to house. So wherever there was a city, it was pretty much solidly inhabited in little 10-foot by 12-foot cubicles that held anywhere between four and eight people. And so it was a very, very densely populated city. And it was frightening to the Jewish people. They looked at it and it's like, really? You want us to go there? And so when you think of Jericho, you need to remember what it is. The slide that you're looking at is Es-Sultan Jericho, which is the city that is in the Palestinian territories right now. You can go there and visit it slightly north of the Dead Sea on the western uh, edge. Very, very, very well uh, documented archaeologically, Dr. Kathleen uh, Kenyon was uh, prime in excavating this particular location, and it's been excavated since about the mid-1930s, all the way until our modern-day present day. And so when you look at it, uh, this tell, this large lump of dirt that's there, actually underneath that are all kinds of fortifications and walls, and uh, we'll see some slides here in a moment. But as you look at this, what you have to imagine uh, is really, uh, though this particular pile of dirt, as it looks right now, is about 40 to 46 feet high. Uh, the city that was once there was probably a little taller than that, at least. And as you can see, as you look out, you're looking in that particular photo. You're looking from the west to the east. So you're looking out towards where the Jewish people would have been. And you can see it is flat as a pancake griddle out there. And out in the middle, in the very far distance, if you look at that little dark line, that's actually the Jordan River. 
So when you think of the city of Jericho, imagine nothing out there, no Arab city, also called Jericho, by the way, which is what you see there in the background of that photo. That city wasn't there. The only thing that was there was this fortified place in the middle of nowhere. And so as you think about it, you need to think about it from that perspective. And you look in this slide, there's three actual pictures there, and they're helpful for you to understand exactly what this city looked like. And again, been very, very, very well excavated. And so when we talk about these things, there's a great degree of certainty uh, that the top of the city was probably 46 to 50 feet above flat ground. Now, to give you an idea, when you drive up to this building, it's only 26 feet from the flat ground of the parking lot. So when you look at this building, imagine something twice as high as this and a quarter of a mile long and about 150 to 250 feet wide that's completely ringed with houses inside of the inner wall and the outer wall and then the top of it completely filled with people. And it's fortified from the ground up. Mud walls on the top, rock walls on the bottom. And so when they looked at it and they saw these walls, they're like, what are we going to do with what we got? We got some swords. That's going to be really effective against that lower wall that uh, was likely in the neighborhood of 25 feet from flat ground. So when you look at the lower wall, it was as tall as this building is. They didn't have siege machines. They didn't have ladders. They didn't have a man lift. Uh, they didn't have giant human slingshots. No way to get over the wall. In fact, the only way into the city at night was an underground passage that also has been very well excavated that led from the outside to the inside. And inside of this particular city was also at least two springs. One is still there. And so when you think about it, you have to think about what the Jewish people saw. And if you look at that trench in that, in that center photo, that's the two walls that are currently separated uh, by what filled in those two walls, which was the upper city. And so that trench that you're looking at right there is 23 feet deep. And so this was a fortified city. And you have to also remember this was 3,400 years ago. So it wasn't last week. And so something of that size was very rare in that area of the world. It existed in Jerusalem. It existed here. It existed at Tel Dan in the north and at Megiddo, and that was pretty much it in that region of the world. Everything else was much smaller. And so as you take an aerial view, now you can see looking down on that city, so it's a little further away, you can see there's just nothing there. And if you're going to attack it, where are you going to attack it from? Uh, they didn't have, you know, a bunch of artillery or anything to lob rockets, missiles, or bombs in there. So as the Jews looked at this particular city, the modern views of it, when they looked at that city, they were looking at something that, for all intents and purposes, could not be conquered. Not by a bunch of people without some serious firepower. And what would normally happen, and this is exactly what happened uh, at Masada, in that day and time, most of the time, if you wanted to take a fortified city, what you did is you laid siege to it. And in laying siege to a city, what that meant was you had to have enough food to outlast the people that were inside of it. You had to have enough water. You had to have enough ability to keep your own troops alive to survive long enough to basically wait them out. And in this case, the Jews had nothing. They had no stored provisions. They didn't come with a bunch of, you know, food that they could just outlast the people inside of Jericho. And so as you look at this uh, whole picture, the Canaanites that were living inside of those villages uh, or inside of the city at that time, probably included everybody who lived outside of the village walls as soon as they saw the Jews coming. So as soon as they saw this mass of people move across the Jordan River, they're now all inside the city. And so a very formidable fighting force inside of the city. And so as you think about that, then you have to think about these giant walls. As you look at this, we're going to see that they march around the city seven times, and we'll get to that in a moment. But as you look at it, you know, what's that going to do? You know, God says, march around the city seven times and then blow some horns. Oh, great. That's a military strategy. You know, it's first thing I thought of when I was going to take the city was I'll march around it and then we'll blow horns and that'll do it. And the walls will just fall down. Of course, from a human perspective, it was an absurdity. And when you look at the the 
fortifications that were there in that center picture, that is the original wall. That is not a retouched photo. That's the actual wall that was there at the time. Portions of it, because it was below ground, actually stayed intact. And so you can see they took great pride in building something that was going to be very tough to get through. In that diagram, you'll notice there on uh, the far side, it would be on uh, my right, your left, uh, you're going to see a little thing that looks like a tunnel. That's actually what it was. There were two of them. And so they could shut the city up. And as our passage says, it was shut up and no one could go in and nobody could go out. The reason being, it was actually a tunnel. And when they shut the tunnel, there was no way over the wall without dropping and breaking a whole bunch of bones. And so you came and went through those very large tunnels and they were shut. You could not go. And so as Jericho was deemed at that point in time uh, to be a, a city-state, and as I shared with you as we began this book, so Dan was like that, Megiddo was like that, Jericho was like that, Ai was like that. They each had their own king. They had their own kingdom, in essence, and it revolved around this, this fortified city. That was what faced the Jews. And so as you look at what was there, like I said, you'd need to have food supplies um, these are the actual fossilized remains. They were there for 3,400 years. They're carbonized. Um, there is also evidence of the fire that we'll see that swept through there. That layer of ash is almost three feet deep in spots, so the city was, in fact, burned. Um, there was also carbonized barley that existed throughout the entire uh, facility. So there were evidences everywhere this city was laid siege to, that it was prepared to meet that siege, and 3,400 years later, there were jars of grain still there. And so all of these things, very, very, very well excavated. Uh, if you notice Dr. Wood's foot there, and it says the walls came tumbling down, amen? It actually says in Hebrew, they fell flat upon themselves. Uh, his right foot is actually on top of the upper wall. And so the evidence shows that the walls actually did fall flat literally flat, uh, as they excavated the dirt mound, which has obviously been uh, messed with and built on top of. That was the normal method of things. When a city uh, popped up somewhere, generally it was built on century after century after century. If you go to Megadio today, uh, there are at least 26, if not more than 30 civilizations that were built one right on top of another in that site, this particular location, a few more than 20. And so as we look at it, and you can see there in that additional photo that these little tiny uh, cubicles that we would call a closet, that was a living space for a whole family. And so when you build them like that, you can get a whole bunch of people in a very small area. And in the center of it was an open area that people could congregate in. They would basically sleep inside these uh, very low-ceilinged buildings. And so uh, as the Jews prepared to attack uh, they were coming against a very formidable city-state. And it's interesting to me, because we saw back in chapter 2, that basically the Lord had already said there in verses 9 and 11 uh, in chapter 2, he says, I will send my fear before you. I'll make sure that the people are afraid of you. You don't have to worry about that. And you know, and sometimes I wonder, uh, is the world afraid of God's people? And after seeing the verdict in that Colorado case uh, of the, the Christian baker that decided, you know, it goes against everything I believe to make a wedding cake for two men. I will not do it. He lost in court. And he says, I don't care. He says, I, I, I just don't care. I, I will, I will. I will risk losing everything I have worked for for my entire life, but I will not deny my Lord Jesus Christ. And he used the full name of the Lord. He says, I won't do it. And he's been brutalized in the media as if he's some evil guy. You need to know the whole story. He said, look, here's, you're asking me to make a wedding cake. Marriage is illegal to two men in the state of Colorado. You can get a civil union. You cannot get married. He says, so I don't have to legally do this. It goes against my personal convictions, and so I won't do it. But what I will do is I will make you anything that I make for free. I just will not do a wedding cake. 
Is the world afraid of the church, or is the church afraid of the world? That's my question. In this case, the world was afraid of the church. You can look at it that way. The world was afraid of God's people. God's name was so well known. His power was so magnificently displayed amongst the people, the children of Israel, that the world shuddered at the church. And I say to you, it's exactly the opposite today. The world has no fear of the church because it has no fear of God. Because I think, to some degree, the church has failed to present God as mighty. That God is who he is. Well, you know, I don't really want to make anybody mad, so I'm just going to do whatever the world says. Right now, we imitate the world's methods. We have the same appetites as the world. We have we seek after the world's approval. And I'm going to share more on this on Sunday. It is staggering what has happened to the church, especially here in America. We have bent and bowed the knee to Baal. And it's just like, when's it going to stop? When is there going to be a Jericho moment? for the church today. And until we stop seeking after the world's standards, we're going to continue to see the same results that we're seeing now. We are pretty much the majority. It's believed that 78% of all Americans profess some faith as a Christian. Now, I will tell you that not 78% of America are real Christians, people who genuinely know the Lord Jesus Christ, but they profess to be some form of Christian. That makes us a majority. Then why is it wrong? Why is it wrong for us to express our viewpoint in the public square? Let me tell you why. Because we have bowed the knee to Baal. We have bought the lie and said, well, you know, I don't want to make anybody upset. I'm pretty sure that was not in the mind of Joshua. Well, we don't want to upset the people in Jericho. We we don't want them to think that, you know, we might have a different opinion. We want to make sure everybody gets along here. You see, especially in the second half of this chapter, that that was about the last thing God was concerned with. And again, I'm not going to preach holy war to you here. That's absurd, not taught in Scripture. But the fact of the matter is the church needs to get some guts and stand up and say, thus says the Lord. God said it. We believe it. We're going to do it. And if you don't like it, you've got a problem with him. And so the promise of the Lord, verse 2. And so the Lord said to Joshua, and I believe this may have been what the Lord Jesus said to him when he saw him in the last chapter. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. Now remember what they're seeing. They're out in the middle of a flat plain. They have no supplies, no reserves, no resources of any kind. It's not a human endeavor. They're not prepared for war against a fortified city. They're looking at a fortified city, and God says to Joshua, See, I have given you the city. I've given you the king of that city. I have given you the mighty men of valor inside of that city. Go take it. There's a tense in the verb here that's very important. I have given you. It's spoken from past tense. It's done. Do you realize that the Lord had actually told them that 40 years earlier? Remember, he said, I have given you the land. It's yours. Just go take it. But they had looked at this exact same city, and all they saw was the king and the mighty men and the fortifications. They had not seen God. Very different position they're now in. Because now they're seeing God for God and the city as less than God. And the world right now is so attractive to Christians that Christians are seeing the city as God. They're seeing the world as God. They're bowing the knee and they're saying, look, we're just going to do things the world's way because I don't want to have trouble with the fortified city. 
family of God, if we're going to stand for the Lord, we're going to have trouble with the fortified city. The fortified city's not going to like us. And we need to learn to understand that. Because if we don't, we're going to be exactly as the children of Israel were 40 years previous to this day. You're going to stare at whatever the world has and goes, man, I'm not attacking that. God may have given it, but I'm not taking it. Joshua and his people, all they had to do was go and claim what the Lord had already done for them and obey him. That's it. There isn't going to be one stitch of any work that they're going to do on their part, unless you say blowing a horn or walking is work. They're going to march around the city, and they're going to blow some horns. They're not going to grab a sword. They're not going to have to scale the walls. They're not going to have to shoot an arrow if they got one. They're not going to have to slash anybody. God's already won the victory. And for us to be victorious in life, there's some things that we need to to lay hold of. Number one, we need to know what God's promised. Amen? If you don't know God's word, then you don't know God's promises, period. It's one of the reasons that we study the Bible and we don't study what Pastor Jeff thinks. We don't study the writings of, of men. We study God's word. We need to know his promises, what he says about himself and about us. And the second thing we have to do is we have to actually believe them. There are a lot of people who actually know what the Bible says, but they don't believe a bit of it. And I can tell you that's true because they don't do any of it. Amen? I know a ton of people. I know people that go to this church that sit here week after week, month after month, year after year, and listen to me flap my gums, and they don't believe a word that God has spoken to them. And the reason I'm saying that is we're studying God's word. We read it chapter and verse. All I'm trying to do is tell you what it says. And I think I'm fairly accurate at doing that. I don't miss it by much, generally speaking. We have to believe it. It gets to the heart level. generates faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the... Word of God. Amen? So you can't know God's promises without studying God's Word and believing it by faith. It's not looking at a fortified city and going, ooh. It's looking at a mighty God and going, you're dead. God said so. And again, I'm allegorizing. Third thing we need to do is we need to reckon those promises and obey them. And to reckon is something that is is unique to human thinking and logic. But it means to count on as true. That's the easiest way to understand it. When you believe something, you understand it at the heart level. To reckon it as truth means to count it as truth. It is true, period. It goes beyond the intellectual understanding. It even goes beyond believing it. It's to then act on it. If I reckon something is true, I reckon that this Bible weighs a little over a pound. And I reckon that if I slap you in the nose with it, it's going to hurt. Okay? I believe it. I feel it. I see it. I know it. And because I reckon it to be so, I'm not going to hit you in the nose with it. Because it's going to hurt. In our world, in the intelligence community, we call it actionable evidence. Something you can act on. I reckon it to be so, and I act on it. That's why Jesus instructed his disciples. He said to them, there in John 16, he said, Be of good cheer. Why would they reckon that to be true? Because I have overcome the world. He goes on, in in Galatians, we're told that we, we who are Christ, we have our flesh is crucified. Do I reckon that to be true? Is is Christ sufficient to take care of the fleshly desires that we have in this world? He is, but I have to act on it. That's why I encourage all former alcoholics to not make it their business to go into a bar. You've got to reckon it as truth. God said, don't do it. You know that's the truth. Act on it. Reckon it. 
And so when we think on these things, we believe them, we act on them. Believing us in a promise, a check is a promissory note, amen? How many of you have a checking account in here? Okay, if you got a checking account, your check is a promise to pay, amen? Is it money? No, our money's not money, amen? <laughs> it's also a promise to pay, a bad promise to pay, I might add. But your check is a promise to pay. And so you can take that check and you can accept that check, but reckoning it is to go down to the bank and cash it. That's when you find out if it's good or not. The Jewish people were about to reckon whether God had been truthful with them or not. God said, I've given you the city, go take it. The way you reckon it to be true is to believe it, go do it, and let the results speak for themselves. That's what they were about to do. You see, they needed to believe in their heart that these things were so. Pick up now in verse 3. For you shall march around the city, all your men of war, and you shall go all around the city once, and this you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of the ram's horn before the ark. So they've got these ram's horns. They're not the silver horns that they used at the temple, but the ram's horns that were used to mark battle. And so here they are, they're marching around. And it would be before the ark, so God's word would go before him. God honors his word above his name. Amen? Isn't that what scripture says? So the word of the Lord, acting on it, reckoning it to be true, goes before the children of Israel. The, the announcement would come afterwards. Go do it. But on the seventh day you shall mark around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when you make a long blast with the ram's horn, then you will hear the sound of the trumpet. And that all of the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. Again, Dr. Wood's foot on that flat wall, fallen down flat. The entire wall, the upper wall, fell over flat. Everywhere it's been excavated, which is about 50% of that tell, they find this flat wall in the same place, covered with ash because the inner city was burned. You're going to find out the city was burned. And the people should go up every man straight before him. The only way they could do that, they're not going up straight before them if the walls are still there. Amen? They're going up straight before if the walls are down flat. As Francis Schaeffer rightly said in his book, The Unknown God, Joshua did not take the city by clever human military strategy or tactic. It was a strategy of the Lord that gained the victory. And we need to remember that there's no there's no battle that's too tough for God. When, when Jesus saw five thousand hungry people, what did he do? Oh man, I hope somebody's got a big fridge. <laughs> Boy, I hope the I hope the fishing's good today. He went after a little boy's lunch. He did exactly the opposite of what we would do. We'd put together a committee and we'd get a logistics group together and we'd send a bunch of trucks and we'd go all over the place with everything we can think of. We'd be connected on LinkedIn. We'd be putting it out on Facebook. Can you imagine if this happened today? The Facebook posts. Hungry people, come and feed them. You know, it'd just go all over the world in like 15 seconds. And pretty soon, you know, here'd come a bunch of food bank trucks, and it'd all be human effort. It wasn't possible then. God always knows what he's going to do. And remember, Jesus wasn't put off by it. Matter of fact, remember the disciples, well, we don't have any money. We don't have any food. Didn't bother God. He can make all the food he needs. He can conquer any city. There are three ways that we can kind of look of look as we head out in service for the Lord. And they're the three principal ways that the people at that day and time, and that we can look at in a general sense, every single day when you're faced with something. One is we can make our best plans and hope that they succeed. Amen? That's a pretty much a common way that people do things, isn't it? Nothing, I, and I'm not even picking on people who 
simply take that track. You do your best, and you hope they work. Sometimes we call that providence. Sometimes we call it dumb luck. Sometimes we call it, you're not so bright, boy. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) Mama didn't raise no fool. But the bottom line is, most of us can come up with that particular tact. A second way is we can make our own plans and then ask God to bless them. See, the first one leaves God out entirely. It's all human effort. The second one's kind of a 50-50 proposition. Now, this is the one that I think most of us fail at most of the time. I come up with some dumb, lame idea, and then I begin to embark on that, and then I go, well, God, you got to bless it, because it's all I can do. That's the second way. That actually has more, more of the Lord in it than the first one. But the third way is to ask God his plans first. Now, this is the hard one. This is where the Jewish people failed 40 years earlier. They did number one. Then they did number two. That didn't work either. Then finally they got to number three, which is going to work. And then we do what he tells us to do. Now, does that mean that you have nothing, there's no involvement on your part? Of course not. They had to march through the wilderness. They had to survive all that time. They had to be obedient to the Lord. They were still doing things as far as God was concerned, but they weren't taking his job. And there's a whole lot of Christians that try and take God's job. I figured out as I've gotten older that's not really wise, and it's very unproductive. And so as you look at this whole picture... It makes no sense whatsoever. Okay, you're going to march around the city. Now, I I want to give you a couple little pictures here. How many days did the Lord work on the universe? Six. And on the seventh day, he did what? Uh Uh-huh. Sound kind of familiar? It's the same picture. God's saying, look, you're going to march around it for six days, and then we're just going to blow the ram's horn and the walls are going to fall down flat, and then you're just going to walk in. You're going to kind of rest your way in. Because I'm going to take care of it for you. It's the picture that God's used throughout his, his marking of the children of Israel. And he uses the number seven. It's actually, whenever you see Sheba on the end of anything, that means seven or completion. So, Be'er Sheba means seven springs. So, when you, when you see seven... You, you know that God's up to something. Not man's up to something. That's God's number. God was up to something. He had given them the plan. All they needed to do was do it. And so as they march around the city, when you look at the children of Israel, it's just their whole life revolves to some degree around the number seven. The, sap, the Sabbath is the seventh day. Amen? There are seven weeks before Passover and then Pentecost. The seventh year is called the sabbatical year. Forty-nine years, which is seven times seven, is the year of Jubilee. So the Lord says, when I'm at work, I'm going to take care of it. You just need to walk in it. You need to be obedient to it. You need to do what I tell you to go in and take it. And you can look at that throughout all of the Jews' history as the Lord laid out what he wanted them to do. And so he's speaking to them. He's saying, look, I've already taken care of it. I created the victory. All you need to do is go in and claim it. It's yours. How much work did Adam do before he messed up? Zero. God created the world, put Adam in it. He said, it's yours. He's saying the same thing to Jewish people. Look. I've taken care of the enemy. You go in and possess it. Rest in it. It's done. God has the ability to to finish what he started. And so they begin to to look at this. and, And as they would blow the shofar, they would blow the ram's horn to mark the day of rest. So it was at this time that they blew the shofar to to 
announce the day of rest. And, and then they would blow then the ram's horn, which is the jobel, not the shofar, and, and that would bring in the jubilee, the joy of heart. He says, look, I want you to blow the ram's horn, the jobel. You're going to blow the trumpet, the shofar, to announce the work that's going to be done, and then you're going to rest, and you're going to blow the ram's horn. And he's giving them a picture. He's saying, look, here's my part, here's your part, and here's what I'm going to do for you. It's really a picture of grace. It's how it works. God's already won the battle. Jesus said it's finished on Calvary's cross. He didn't say, well, it's kind of sort of done. You guys finish it up. He said, it's finished. All you need to do is now enter into the joy of the Lord. You need to hear the blowing of the ram's horn, the jobel, and say, look, it's mine. I'm going to take it. I need to reckon it as truth. I need to act on it. I believed it. I saw it. I believed it. I'm going to act on it. And so as they begin to realize what God's saying to them, the prophet Isaiah said it. Joshua's going to say it later in chapter 25. They're going to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is God's doing. We're free. We've entered in by, by grace now. And so he begins to wind this whole story up, pick up now, if you will. And Joshua, uh, the son of Nun, it says there in verse 6, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let the seven priests bear the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Notice they didn't take the silver trumpets of the temple. They took the seven ram's horns that God told them to take. So they knew this wasn't going to be their doing. It wasn't going to be they finished it. They brought their sacrifices. God had already done it. They were going to declare it in Jubilee. Done. And he said to the people, proceed and march around the city and let him who is armed advance before the ark of the Lord. So they send all of the armed guys into harm's way first. You go first. Typically in a battle situation like this, you would try and soften up the enemy by sending in unarmed people first to get them to expend their energy killing off unarmed people. So God says, I want you to do it in reverse. You send the armed guys and they're not going to do anything. They're just going to march around the city. And so it was when Joshua had spoken to the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the Lord advanced and blew trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them and remember what was with them in the Ark of the Covenant. The provision of God, the power of God, the word of God. It's all inside the Ark. The glory of God rested over the Ark. So they're saying, look, we're going to take God and march him around this thing, and you're going to know this is his battle because the armed men are going to do nothing. We're declaring the power of the Lord himself. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them, and the armed men went before the priest and blew, who blew the trumpets. And the rear guard came after the Ark, and while the priest continued blowing the trumpets, and now Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout, and then you shall shout. There was no taunting. There was no bullying. There was no, nee, 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 our God's bigger than your God. There was no, you know, vulgarities. There, you know, your mama wears army boots. There was none of nothing. You're going to be silent. You're going to be sitting ducks. It's a picture of how we gain our salvation, isn't it? We just receive it. We don't do anything for it. There's nothing we can say to get it. There's nothing we can do to get it. There's nothing to be won. There's something to be received. So you guys just march around it. That's all I want you to do. When I tell you to shout, you shout. <clears throat> and so we had the ark of the Lord circle the city going around it once. And then they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. I bet they were really trying to figure out who these freaks were. They march around the city one time. You got the priest, the Ark of the Covenant, then they go back to camp and they go to sleep. They're resting. They're not stressing. They're not over at the base of the walls with shovels trying to dig their way in. They're not building a rampart. They're not building a dirt siege ramp. They went back and went to sleep. 
And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. Then the priests, bearing the seven trumpets of the ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, went on continually and blew the trumpets, and the armed men before him, and the rear guard after the ark, and ark of the Lord, and while the priests continued blowing the trumpets, on the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and they did so for six days. They did exactly what they had been commanded to do. It's an incredible picture of how we need to be responsible for the word of the Lord and simply do it. Can I tell you there are some times when the word of the Lord doesn't make a whole lot of sense? Amen? You can say amen. If you haven't come across a passage of Scripture that you don't understand what God's trying to say or why he wants you to specifically do that, then you ain't read much of the Bible. Because I run onto it pretty regularly. And it's what I do for a living is study this. If you want to look at it that way. I spend four to six hours a day in that book. I run across stuff. Really? You want me to do that? I don't think so. I like hating people. They're idiots, Lord. And I'm not going to love them just because you said so. I know there's nobody else in here who's ever thought that. You all love the unlovable every day. I know that. You want me to love my wife as Christ loved the church? Right now, I don't even like her. I'm supposed to respect my husband? He's disrespectful. You see what I'm saying? There are times when you think you know better, and you look at it and you're like, I'm not going to do that. And yet, if you live long enough, you're going to find out the Lord is right 100% of the time. You're going to, yeah, amen. You're going to live long enough to go, you know, I wish I had done that about 10 years ago. They obeyed the Lord, and they did exactly what he said to do. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day, and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. And on that day they only marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time it happened that when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua told the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, I want you to see something very clearly. They did not claim the full blessings of the Lord until they did exactly what the Lord had told them to do. Remember when I said if you want God's blessings, that you need to be obedient? If you want God's blessings, if you want the fullness of what he has promised you, then you need to do what he told you to do. If you don't, you will not receive the full blessings of the Lord that he has promised you. There is no place in Scripture where we are taught that you get the blessings of the Lord without obedience to the Lord. There is no place in Scripture where he, he, well, you know, you just live however you want. He didn't tell the woman at the well, hey, go and sin less. He said, go and sin no more. Don't do it. Period. If you want the blessings, you do what he says. If you don't want the blessings, do what you think. In this case, they did exactly what the Lord had commanded them. And because of it, they gained the victory. They didn't win the victory. They gained the victory that had already been won. You see, and that's where we are in Christ. We've already won. The battle's been fought at Calvary's cross. It's guaranteed. It's ours for the taking but we take it the way God asks us to take it. We don't get to make our own rules and regulations. We don't get to tell God what we think he should do. He tells us how we should live. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. It's demonstrating that you believe God above what your evidence may say. Because very often people look at the evidence around them, they just believe the evidence. If I'd have believed the evidence at this day and time, I'd have been going back, I'm swimming to the other side of the Jordan. I'm like, I'm going back on the other side. That's a fortified city. We're a bunch of half-starved people. Not taken. 
not going to do it. And you see, when we begin to see things through God's perspective, we then get our faith tested. We get our patience tested. And in this case, they've had that faith tested for 40 years. Sometimes I feel like I get my faith tested for a very long time. You probably do too. But when we accept God's presence in our life, Remember, the presence of the Lord is going around the city every time. Amen? That's what the Ark of the Covenant was. He stood between the cherubim. That was where the pillar and the cloud resided. As they went around, they were accepting the presence of the Lord in their life. They were accepting that he'd already fought the battle and that he'd won it. They were believing exactly what God said, and they were being obedient to exactly what God said. It's a recipe for us for success. Because we fight from the victory. The question is, are we going to take the victory as the Lord gives it? Are we going to try and manufacture our own battle? I've been pretty famous for manufacturing my own battles at times. I take things that God's already done and it's like, well, you know, I really need to work at this. I think I'll stress myself out a little bit more. God is never anxious. Do you realize that? God is never anxious. Think about it for a second. The only reason that we're anxious as Christians, the only reason that we're anxious as Christians, if you're a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus, is that we don't have enough faith. Because he's already won the battle. When you get anxious, it's because you don't believe he's already won the battle. You think you need to win the battle. Now, does that mean we don't have concern? Of course not. Does that mean we're not human and sometimes we fail at this particular aspect of our lives? I still do myself. But God's not anxious. God doesn't look at Jericho and, oh, man, they have really built this city up. They could stay in there for years. They've got, I don't, you know, I mean, come on. I mean, how am I really going to, God doesn't think that way. God doesn't look at the things that we look at the way we look at them. He sees them only from his perspective. That week's schedule was a test of their patience. Can you imagine about the third or fourth time around the city? Can you imagine what they were thinking? I guarantee you there were people inside of that crowd, however large it was, probably 100,000 people or so, at least, may have been the whole group, which might have been more than a million people. Can you imagine a million people streaming out of a camp in an acacia grove, walking across about two miles of flat ground? You saw it. It's just as flat now as it was then. And then walking around the city, and then going back to their camp and going, and this is somehow going to win a victory. I guarantee you, on the third day, they're like, this is kind of lame. Hey, Bob, do you have another idea? Because this one is L-A-M-E, lame. They go back to their few things that they've been able to collect because remember they've been getting fed with manna and that ended so they had to go collect some groceries too mm, kind of getting tired of the frog legs I'm sure about the end of the week they're going oh, man, I hope this works but God didn't let them down tested their self control their diligence Psalm 46 says, be still, be still, be still, and know that I am God. Not be busy, not be anxious, not whip up another plan, be silent, be still, and know that I am God. The only way that we grow in faith. We accepted new challenges. This was a challenge for the Jewish people. 
And we've got to trust God to give us the victory. Because we fight from victory and not for. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that truth. Lord, help us to be faithful marchers. Lord, sometimes we just need to put one foot in front of the other. God, move on. Lord, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. Not perfect in this area of my life. Pray that you would just strengthen us, Lord, to receive your commands and act on it. Lord, if you tell us to march around the city, help us to march with pride. Lord, if you tell us to take the land, help us to go in and take it. Lord, help us to walk by faith. Help us to not trust in simple sight, God. Help us to believe. Help us to act. Help us to reckon, Lord. Help us to take that check to the bank and cash it. We love you. We bless you. We thank you. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, the one who fought the fight and won. It's in his name we pray. Amen.